Good evening, everyone. So, yes, I'd like to um, talk about the paramis tonight and in the next few weeks. Um, It's a subject which I really enjoy speaking about because they... These qualities, these aspects, so uh, inform our everyday lives and kind of tie together our what we often in our minds naturally put into different compartments of our meditation practice and then our lives. So I find the paramis, as they're known in Pali, the paramitas uh, in Sanskrit, um, are a constant source of inspiration and interest. Um, And why so becomes clear when we ask, what are we practicing? For me, the answer to that is being human. We are practicing our humanness, and we're doing that also in our meditation, but sometimes that isn't so apparent to us. Just sit down and wonder, what are we doing being with our breath, following our breath, attending to those sensations? What does that got to do with being human? But below the Four Noble Truths and behind the Triple Treasure, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, beyond um, the Dharma itself, there is us. That's us right here and at work and at home, on the road. We're breathing and choosing in every moment. And after all of our concepts and ideas and talk, we're left, as the Buddha was, with being alive in this world of great complexity and great beauty, and a world in which being alive means choosing our actions and choosing our paths. The Buddha famously chose his own name, Awakened Person, Awakened One, because, I believe, because he was aware of the choices that we do have, as human beings. He was awake to the means and the ways of choosing. And that's a little bit what we can explore with the paramis and the paramita. I I call them the big P's and I return to them again and again because they're ready and handy reminders. Um, They're in a form that, that that we can touch and see in a way of what we've been concerned with all along in our journey as human beings in historical and mythical records as far back as they take us. We've been seekers, yogis in Sanskrit, philosophers, uh, artists of all disciplines, poets, musicians, uh, painters, philosophers of all different cultures, uh, Greeks, Romans, Taoists, and even all the people that we don't have records of, 
but all those millions and billions of people who have engaged in what the mystery of being human is about. So I remember Gil saying, often kind of reminding us every now and then, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. So in other words, before this superstructure of, uh, of all the institutions and the world, the grand Buddhism world religion, uh, and the encyclopedias of the Pali Canon, and the sutras in the Mahayana tradition, and the commentaries, and all the great drawings and paintings and bodhisattvas, before all of that, there was this human being who was, among other human beings, interested in exploring what is this life. And he did that in such a convincing way that we're still hanging out with him all these millennia later. So I like to translate these terms, the paramis, the paramitas, as the home bases. I feel they're home bases for us. They're often translated and commonly as the perfections or the transcendent practices, um, which are terms that you know are sometimes problematic for perfectionists or idealists or recovering perfectionists or idealists like myself and and really every one of us. Uh, we don't have to identify our personality type to know that we all want to dwell in in the divine, in these in these places, in these perfections where we know our deepest human nature away from the realities of pain and impermanence and the things that aren't in our control. So I think that's part of us too. And in, in, um, in a kind of holding ourselves with compassion, one of my teachers, Martine Batchelor, said, remember, in her illimitable French accent, remember, compassion includes self-compassion. So in that spirit, we can remember that perfection is an aspiration also. It's not just an unpleasant negative personality quality. It can help us and support us. It depends on how we hold it. If we hold it, as the Buddha say, lightly, without pride, gently and respectfully, can be a real home base for us. So these places, these home bases, um, point to what the qualities are in our lives and how we can incorporate them and how we can become aware of them in each of our own body-minds. So I'd like to tell um, a story, really kind of a myth, about how these home bases got to be identified in Buddhism. And I got this story from Guy Armstrong, who teaches at the Spirit Rock. Um, there was a monk, uh, not a, monk, a seeker, a yogi. This was way before monks. This was in the era of Dipankara, the Buddha before the, the mythological Buddha before the historical Buddha that we 
relate to um, Shakyamuni Buddha. So this Sumedha was a seeker trying to understand what's, what's going on here, what am I doing, what's it all about. Uh, and he came out of his retreat and cave or tree and um, ended up in a little town or village where this Dipankara Buddha was visiting with some of his followers and walking up to the village, Sumedha was standing by the side of the road and he saw this radiant being coming toward him. And it was the rainy season and he saw that Dipankara Buddha was just approaching this big patch of mud. And just in a moment of spontaneous generosity, he threw himself down on the mud so that the Buddha and his followers wouldn't have to get their feet dirty. They could walk over him. And so the myth goes that the Buddha, of course, could go into his mind and touch him directly without having to speak words to him, communicate in a human way. And he saw that this act of generosity engendered this great... um, Awakening this transformation in Sumedha. He, he had a sense of what it was to be human, what that, what it entailed, what, what he was looking for. What he had been searching for became clearer to him. And he knew in that moment that he was going to dedicate his life to not only his own search, but to share with his search with others. In other words, he was kind of the early bodhisattva archetype. And after he had that realization, the Buddha sort of spoke to him directly and said, Sumedha, you, um, you had such an understanding that in that moment you could have chosen to be a Buddha completely awake and self-realized, but you chose the path of Bodhisattva. And I deeply honor and respect that path. And you will eventually become a Buddha. It's just going to take a whole lot longer. Sumedha was still... I guess equanimous may be a word. He was still, um, he was all right with that. He'd made his decision. He knew what he was doing. And then he thought, well, I need to think of how to put this in action. How can I do this? I know what I want to do, but how am I going to take that, this beyond words kind of understanding and really play it out the rest of my life. So he went back on a retreat um, and he identified these qualities, which we know as the paramis or the paramitas, as the ways that we can manifest our deepest human nature in the world. So I'd like to read these lists um, just so you know, they kind of sink in and you have an idea of them, but they, you don't have to memorize them or anything by any means. Um, first of all, a little note on the etymology of the word in Sanskrit. 
from uh, a contemporary American teacher and monk, um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who speaks here sometimes. So parama means foremost or preeminent or paramount, like very important. And param, a little one syllable shorter than that, one a shorter, means sure. So sometimes it's viewed as the, 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 the paramount qualities to take us to the other shore, to take us to, which is poetic language for a deep realization of what it is to be human. So their generosity, dana, morality, sila, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And these are the classic uh, paramis in the Pali canon, Theravada, um, which was practiced in Southeast, Southeast Asia and which is where what we practice here at IMC comes from that tradition, the Theravada tradition, insight meditation. Um, but there are also the, um, the paramitas, which comes from the Mahayana, the Zen and Tibetan traditions. And those, um, those are a little different. They use the Sanskrit word. So I'd like to read that list and also give some alternative translations and give some words that are associated in, in all the Buddhist traditions with these qualities of heart and mind. Once again, beginning with generosity, dana is considered the sort of foundation of, of all the heart-mind qualities. And then also morality is next. Patience is next. Vigor, which is also on the um, Pali Canon list. And, and actually, by the way, none of these are, are in the Pali Canon. In the very early texts, these don't even appear. So that story was kind of a mythological story. And then uh, they don't appear until much later, really. And they're not attributed to the Buddha. So after vigor comes meditation, then wisdom. So those are the main uh, six that, that I hope to explore with you in the next few weeks. Um, to, to give you uh, a sense of what's associated with these, generosity is associated with joy and happiness. Um, Morality is uh, translated also as ethical conduct, and it's associated with virtue, non-harming. It's also associated with honesty. It's that non-harming sense that we have when we really get in touch with the fact that we don't want to harm ourselves or others. And that kind of honesty, when we when we touch into that place of honesty that we... Uh, we know we have nothing to be afraid of in telling the truth, that we don't have to put any masks on, that we can just be who we are and as we are. So a deep kind of self-honesty and also honesty in the face of others. Patience is uh, also translated as forbearance, being with things, 
whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. I think of it as open-heartedness and open-mindedness. When we, when we have those people in our lives or those situations that arise, when, we, when we're really open with them and open to them, that's uh, an expression of patience. Vigor has got a lot of translations. It's uh, zeal, endeavor. It's associated with vitality and enthusiasm and also with perseverance, with staying with something, (coughs) seeing it through to the end, the bodhisattva kind of mind-heart. And meditation is, um, is associated with concentration, samadhi, and being settled and focused. We settle into our breath, calmness. Um, and then wisdom, which in the Sanskrit is prajna, and in the Pali is panya, is things as they are. It's associated with seeing clearly knowing for oneself that there's really no separation between us and other things. Knowing, um, knowing the, the openness and expansiveness, the flow of life. Then there are others uh, in the Mahayana tradition which we won't I have time to cover, but I'd like to just put them out there so that you know they are there. Skillful means is the next paramita. So knowing how to express one's heart and mind uh, in the world in a skillful way, knowing what's appropriate um, in different situations. The next paramita is, is vow or commitment. And that's associated with aspiration and bodhicitta, the, uh, the, the heart impulse that we have to really awaken very deeply to what it is to be human. Then there is, uh, there is also, there are also spiritual powers is another paramita. And that's, uh, that's a very complex one that, uh, it's sometimes considered an esoteric one, but it's often considered uh, just a complex one that has these five parts of faith and zeal, a real commitment, and another kind of commitment, recollection, um, absorption, and wisdom itself. And the last paramita is knowledge. And this this is knowledge in the, the cognitive sort of knowledge that we have as human beings. So it kind of includes reason and study, language, talking, speaking, sharing the truth. As Dogen said, words and phrases illuminating, discriminating thought. So that all falls under knowledge. 
So I've gone through the lists of the paramitas, but I really find them more like a sphere, more or like a dome, a geodesic dome with all those little connectors or the image of Indra's net um, because their connections radiate out to one another and they can be turned and contemplated from different points of view. And so we can see their interconnectedness and how that supports us and how that works in our lives. Sometimes they're taught as a progression also with Donna as the ground. Um, and one can read them that way. But I, I do find it helpful to remember that any base is home base. It doesn't have to be that you always go back to the ground of generosity. You can go to the ground of patience or wisdom. Wisdom. So in the next few weeks, I'd like to explore these with you and, and also their relations to one another. And tonight, I'll mainly talk a little bit about generosity. Next week, ethical conduct and patience and then vigor and meditation and wisdom and, and the qualities that relate to that in the last week. So generosity, giving. Uh, Aitken Roshi um, has a wonderful book on the, on the Mahayana paramitas called Living the Ten Perfections. And he tells a story about Thich Nhat Hanh in there, uh, which I think it's good to start off with here about giving. So Thich Nhat Hanh was in, in doing something uh, with someone from a government in relation to his peace work. And he, he had, to have, had to have a meeting with this person from, who was you know, a government diplomat or something. And, and he said, I just can't relate to that person. So I just, I put that out so that we remember and recall, I think it's very important to, that these aren't ideals, that even the people that we admire the most and respect the most highly are also human. These are human qualities. And even Thich Nhat Hanh, who's written books on generosity, who knows generosity, uh, also has people that it's hard to relate to and difficult to relate to. So the joys of generosity, and this is considered the foundation of of, the paramitas and virtues because it's so broad and deep in human beings, it's relatively easy to access for most human beings. It really takes a lot of effort to keep the springs of generosity from bubbling up into action, actually. And I think that's where the stories, such as uh, the tales, such as Moliere's The Miser or Dickens' Scrooge or Dr. Seuss's The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, have, have this perennial appeal um, because we find it both tragic and comic that people, including ourselves, deny a trait as deep as generosity. And there are many stories of humans whom we would consider that we consider, you know, the most depraved or deluded, such as Hitler, whose streaks of generosity nevertheless surfaced. In Hitler's case, his his great concern for animals, his vegetarianism, and his um, his treatment of his dogs as beloved beings. 
generosity, philanthropists often want to be recognized. But the Buddhist traditions enjoin us to live quietly, to give quietly, so that others don't know we're giving. And that's a really interesting practice, to notice where we are and what comes up for us when we give in that mode. It's also interesting to notice the relationship between giving and receiving. They are just two sides of the coin. They're not at all, they're one, you do not have one without the other as a human being. And when we pay attention and sometimes we remember times that we gave often material gifts, non-material gifts of ourselves or of time, that we were so enriched by the giving we felt like we were receiving. We felt joy and happiness and a sense of completeness. Our life itself is a gift and everything in it and even the difficulties and even the horrors. There's a way that we can appreciate these without denying their impact or their presence. In fact, denying the unpleasant is meeting it with gratitude and compassion. Gratitude is another aspect of generosity. There's the old Zen story of the monk and the baby. He lived in a small fishing village. And there was a young woman in the village who, uh, who got pregnant and wasn't married. And she went through a pregnancy and refused to tell her parents who the father of the child was. And after the baby was born, uh, her parents said, look, we're too poor. We can't keep the child. You have to tell us, and, and the father's going to have to take responsibility and help raise the child. And she said, it's the monk. So the parents were horrified and shocked and mad and angry, and they said, well, all right, he's, he's, he's a lot better off than we are because the people give him you know, some rice and some fish and uh, we'll just, he'll take care of the child. We'll just give it to him. So they brought this new baby to the monk's house. And they said, our daughter told us a story. You're the father and we're, we can't believe that, but uh, we have to believe what our daughter says. And you'll have to take care of this baby. If you're the father, it's your responsibility. And the monk held out his hands and took the baby without saying, without either denying or admitting that he was the father. So a couple of years went by and the monk took wonderful care of the baby and went through all those wonderful moments of early childhood and all the difficult moments. But the monk wasn't the father of the baby. And the mother, her remorse and her her unhappiness grew and she knew that she could no longer keep up this lie. So she went to her parents and she said, really, I told you a lie. The father of the baby is a young man from the next village and we want to marry and we can take care of the child. So the parents went back to the monk and they said, we're, we're really sorry. Um, our daughter told us the truth and 
we're taking the baby back because the baby needs a mother and a father. And the monk handed the baby back. Receiving and letting go is dana. It's also generosity. It's giving. Then there's the inspiration of dana, and this is from the Buddha's words, royal giving with no thought of self or of other or of gift. When we can feel the seamless reality of abundance, For me, one of the most touching aspects of the way these teachings have been brought to the West, even right here at IMC, is that they're offered freely. I think that's a remarkable generosity to bring these teachings in that way um, to our culture, a very materialist culture so that we're given the opportunity to freely express our generosity, however we feel that in that moment. From the Visuddhimagga, which is a meditation text that outlines many facets of Buddhist views on everything, uh, including giving, this is a selection from um, kinds of consciousness. It also has a lot to say about psychological states. When one encounters a gift or gives a gift or is a recipient and one's mental state is accompanied with joy, associated with the knowledge that this is uh, meritorious and good, Unprompted, one's mental state is helpful to one. And then the Visuddhimagga goes on to delineate that children may have a response of joy when giving or receiving, but they are not usually aware of their mental state. And sometimes they have to be prompted to give. You might remember that or recognize that from our children. In a way, these practices are about uh, maturity, growing into being human. And in their connected way, we can, as we become aware and more sensitive to, say, generosity in our lives, we see how patience can be a gift, both to ourselves and to others, and how it helps develop skillful means in our lives. In other words, how our choices become clearer through tuning into our generosity. The Buddhists say we can rejoice in our generosity. We can taste our gladness. In the Theravadan in Asia and in the Mahayana Tibetan and Zen practices, every time meditation is done, uh, either individually or in group, all the practices are formally dedicated to the well-being of others. The practices themselves, practice of meditation, is given away. From Dogen Zenji, who was the great Soto Zen meditation master who lived in the 8th century 
Christian era. When one learns well, being born and dying are both giving. All productive labor is fundamentally giving. Entrusting flowers to the wind, birds to the season, also are meritorious acts of giving. It is not only a matter of exerting physical effort. One should not miss the right opportunity. And here is where our meditation practice supports our ability to see the right opportunity. Meditation and generosity amplifying one another. So the sayings and the the lists of the paramis that the Buddha and the many bodhisattvas and the meditation masters have left behind for us are all invaluable, yet are as little comparable to our own journeys as a photo of a friend or a loved one is to that person standing next to us in the same room. Our homecomings to these qualities go on as long as our breath. And they keep us alive and vital and filled with energy and vigor. A story um, from an experience I had. One time I went out um, in the past, I I guess it was about a year and a half ago, In the middle of the night, I went out to see the Leonid showers, the meteor showers. And that's quite an amazing spectacle of color and movement and light and dark. And some of the meteors were quite brief, and some were much longer. And each was distinct in color and form, duration and placement in the sky. And and a line from an old Joni Mitchell song came to my mind. We are stardust. And we are, in fact, cosmic dust. And our lives are brief and colorful. But our practices are just to meet our lives in each homecoming, in whatever form they take and to trust in them, to trust in our generosity, trust in our compassion, to trust in our openness, to trust in our perfections. So I'd like to close by reading um, a poem. I'm very fond of reading poetry. This poem is by Rilke. It's from the sonnets to Orpheus, and it's sonnet number 20. But Master, what gift shall I dedicate to you who taught all creatures their ears? My thoughts of an evening long ago. It was springtime in Russia a horse. He came bounding from the village, alone, white, with a hobble attached to one leg, 
to stay alone in the fields all night. How the mane beat against his neck to the rhythm of his perfect joy in that hindered gallop across the meadow. What leaping went on in his stallion blood. He felt the expanses, and oh, he sang and he heard. Your cycle of myths was completed in him. His image, my gift. So thank you. And um, if any of you um, feels like sharing something, we would be most grateful. I expressed her most of her mind and not more. And interesting, I told her I didn't see her guilt and not be separate. And I thought, how did my heart open my mind? And maybe remembering that to really do it, but I was just recognizing my mind is generous, my kids is generous, and I'm trying to be friends. So I think sometimes it feels um, like we're split, but we're really not. And um, and that's in a way where these 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 paramitas all support one another. Um, I think the meditation practice, the fact that we come to practice um, helps us see beyond that split, helps us see that there is no split. Um, And also drawing from um, drawing from the Mahayana, it's, uh, it's considered great generosity to have a mind that's generous. Even if you even if you're say, okay, you can split up the heart-mind. Even if you say, well, I don't recognize that they're really the same. Uh, To have the intention, to have the thought to go to a generous place is considered um, very of great merit, healing, uh, and that is enough. So trusting just in that and, and not having necessarily to put those together. Maybe just Saying, okay, that's the way it is now. I feel that there's a difference here. Uh, I wish it was more unified, but um, that's enough. So maybe we can share the last couple of minutes of silence. That's a great gift, silence.
may any merit from our practice together tonight be of benefit to all beings.